I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to a very familiar text. In the Pauline epistles, we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 tonight, given our topic, uh, the grace essential uh, related to the text of Scripture. And I want to begin tonight by reading a text to you. And before we read that text, let me, let me, set, let me frame it this way uh, so that maybe as we read it together, <clears throat> the text will uh, do its powerful work in our life. When you think about final words that somebody has to say, knowing that their time to depart is nigh, those words take on deep significance and deep meaning. They tend to come from a heart that is expressing its deepest longings and its most passionate desires about something or to someone. And generally, as you think about those words, they, they have great impact on the life of the recipient. And our text tonight is found in that kind of a context. These words that we're looking at, uh, and you can see this very clearly in chapter 4, are, are clearly on Paul's mind. He, he knows that the time of his departure is at hand. Notice how he expresses it in verse 6 of the fourth chapter. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And then the very familiar testimony that Paul gives about that time of service to the Lord. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's as though Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, and explaining to him that after spending his life in a very unexpected and unanticipated mission. I think as you are introduced to the life of Paul and, and you come into the thinking that just reflects in his writings, there, there was a sense in which he never anticipated spending his life doing this. There was an unanticipated and unexpected mission to bring as an acceptable sacrifice to God a group of people called the Gentiles. If you read Romans and come to that end of that incredible letter, Paul actually talks about the fact that he, he has been called by God to reach Gentiles and to bring them as a, a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto God, which kind of puts Romans chapter 12 in a little bit of a light for us. And, and Paul says, I have labored diligently for this goal. I have suffered faithfully, and now the mission is almost done. I, I am about to be poured out to God as a drink offering. The, the sacrificial imagery and terminology associated with Paul and this mission are, are, are incredibly uh, impacting. I, I have been called by God to bring a sacrifice to him, and, and that sacrifice is a group of people that God is going to call out of darkness and and, and transfer into the kingdom of his dear son. He is going to open their eyes and, and help them to see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. They're going to recognize the truth about Jesus, who poured out his blood for us, and now, as a fitting conclusion to my unexpected and unanticipated mission of bringing a sacrifice acceptable and holy to him, I am about to be poured out. 
And Timothy, as I face that, I want to write some things to you. Not everybody who started with me on this mission are still with me. And he can begin to explain this to us in the first chapter as he starts talking about people who at one time had been a part of the mission with him, but who had departed, uh, Demas being one of them. And so the exhortation in the text before us is to his son in the faith as he is about to depart and he is encouraging Timothy to remain faithful to the mission. Notice how he phrases it beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, and then we'll pray together. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then this very familiar charge to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me tonight as we ask the Lord's help in applying this text to our lives? Lord, thank you for these words that you breathed out through your servant, Paul. And even though those words were directed to a particular individual named Timothy, we want to appropriate them for ourselves tonight. We ask that your spirit would help us to do this. And as we come to these texts tonight, I pray that the message from them would be impacting to us, that it would strengthen us, and that it would minister grace that we need in order to serve you well. And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For my formative years in ministry, I, I attended Bob Jones University, and, and I ended up teaching there for 10 years after I graduated. And every day, for four days of the week, we, uh, we had a chapel service. And every day in chapel, for most of the days, we recited a creed. And uh, so I think I've recited this creed literally several thousand times in my life. Uh, in the last four years I've been there, I know that I've recited it more than 400 times. And the creed actually is uh, a, a statement, an affirmation of the primary doctrines that make up the faith that we share and that we have in common. And the first of those Nine affirmations starts this way. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And then it continues both the Old and the New Testaments. I have said that part of the creed, as I said, thousands of times. And so it seems almost ridiculous that we would open a conference like this on something so basic. Let me ask it this way. How many of you 
believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments. You believe that tonight? So why would we take an entire sermon opening a conference like this to talk about something that you already affirm? And my question to you tonight is, do you think that Timothy believed that when Paul wrote these words? So I think there's something here, even though this, this affirmation that, that I have presented to you tonight and that you have affirmed back by your own statement that is so deeply entrenched in us, that there is something inherently foundational to the rest of everything that we believe in this statement. One of the, one of the things that has marked this ministry for, for many, many years has been a commitment to the text of Scripture. Why is that so important? Why is that so foundational? And, and I would submit to you that, that that is so foundational because everything else about your faith rises up out of that text. Everything that you know about God, everything that you believe about the theology of your faith, all the doctrines that you hold dear, everything that you know about Jesus, you know because it has been revealed to you in a text, in a scripture. And so believing that scripture is foundational to everything else that we do in our Christian life. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to look at this text and I want to just answer three questions. And, and as we talk about those questions, I want to go to this text to find the answers. Question number one is this, what does belief look like? When, when you and I affirm that we actually believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, what does that belief actually look like? And then secondly, what are we supposed to believe when we talk about belief? What is it that we're supposed to believe? What is the content of that belief? And then thirdly, why is that belief so important? So let's look first at why or what does this belief entail? What does it look like to Paul? Look at verse 14 in the text. Paul says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And I would suggest to you that as we look at Paul's language here, belief in this sense has to start here. It has to be genuinely personal. It has to start in a deeply personal sense. But Timothy, you continue thou in the things that you have learned. In contrast to the other teachers who have come to Ephesus to teach their doctrine, Timothy, you personally have to come to a genuine personal conviction about the truths that are being articulated in the Scriptures. You have to come to a deeply settled conviction about the Word of God. So it, it starts this way. When you and I affirm the inspiration of the Scriptures, there has to come a moment in our life where that belief becomes genuinely personal. That's something that you actually believe. And then it has to be unshakably persistent. Paul says, continue in the things you have learned, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. The idea here is to remain unmoved, to grasp, to hold, to refuse to be swayed. 
And, and, and Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have learned certain truths, certain realities from reliable and credible people whose lives and character and conduct you have seen up close, and you have witnessed over a lengthy period of time. And he names two women in Timothy's life, his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois. You have understood these truths. You saw them in action under fire in the ministry that you shared with me. You learned the Scripture in general and specifically about its inspiration from very credible sources. You have learned them as a congregation. I have learned them as a congregation from credible and reliable sources. Paul looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, the things that, that I'm urging you to hold on to and to continue in and to grow deep in are truths that you learn from reliable sources. We have that same reality in our life. We've learned about the inspiration of, of, of the scriptures from, from Jesus himself, who gave testimony to its authority and to its inspiration with regard to both the Old and the New Testaments. You, you learned it from the apostles themselves who were moved by the Holy Spirit and wrote these words down literally as the breath of God on a page. Some of you in this room have learned this from godly parents and godly pastors who have lived it out before you and from the men and women around you who taught you Sunday school, who have lived out their faith faithfully here in this very congregation, in this very place. And so Paul would say to us, hold on to this truth. Don't be shaken. Don't be swayed in your belief. Hold on to the truth that is deeply personal and unshakably persistent. And then notice that it must be deeply passionate. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. And I would suggest to you that when it comes to the inspiration of the Bible, you and I have to go much deeper than just accurate comprehension. It can't just be mental assent or the understanding that, that this is really part of doctrinal orthodoxy. That there ha it can't be less than that, but it, but it actually has to be deeply rooted in your heart. It has to be deeply rooted in your soul. It has to resonate at the deepest level. It's a belief that profoundly moves you and that you treasure above all other beliefs. It is a living, moving, deeply stirring conviction that brings you amazement and joy and confidence. Paul says, Timothy, hold on to the things that you've learned. You cannot be moved or shaken about this. So when it comes to the, the faith that, that you and I have espoused, the things that we know about God the Father, the realities that we know about God the Son, the, the, the wonderful uh, truth that we have in the scriptures about God the Spirit, the, the ministry that God has unfolded in our redemption that, that goes way beyond just our own personal redemption, but really the regathering of all things under his son. These truths that you have come to know, that I have come to embrace, Paul says, don't be swayed from these things. So when we talk about belief in the major ideas and theological realities that make up our Christian faith, those truths have to be truths that we honestly 
believe and that we are genuinely and unswervingly persistent in and that, that we are deeply at the very core of our souls passionate about. And that brings us then to this question, how do we know those truths that we are not to be shaken away from? I mean, how do you know what you know about grace, which is such an important component of your life as a congregation? How do you know what you know about grace? How do you know what you know about the ministry of the Spirit of God that energizes you in that grace? How do you know about the ministry that Jesus accomplished on the cross that made all of that grace possible, and that was the supreme example and display of mercy and grace to you? And the answer is, all that you know about those things is here. And so holding on to those things deeply and passionately and in a manner that, that, that goes beyond just mental assent and doctrinal orthodoxy requires something else. You have to believe something about the book that tells you these things. And that's why at the very front end of our faith, at the very front end of everything else that we believe has to come this unshakable persuasion and conviction that the, the book and the words that reveal those truths to us are reliable. And that's why when you and I come to this book and we listen to Paul, Paul begins by articulating the idea that we must not be swayed. There has to be belief that is genuinely personal, unshakably persistent, and deeply passionate. So when it comes to the Bible, what does that look like? What exactly are followers of Jesus to believe about their Bible? And that's the next thing that Paul unfolds here. If we're to have this kind of belief about the things and the, the truths and the realities that make up our faith, and it has to start with this unshakable conviction in our Bible, what exactly are we supposed to believe about our Bible? What are we supposed to hold on to when we think about the truth of God's Word? And, and Paul would say it this way, there are, there are two things that you and I have to be resolved about and deeply convinced with regard to our Bible. And the first of these is this, that these writings are holy. These writings are holy. Notice how Paul expresses this, how in verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And the idea there is that these writings, these sacred writings, the word sacred, the word holy there, is, is referring to the fact that these writings are unique. They are set apart. They, they exist in a category all of their own. There are no other writings on earth like them. And they are unique in this way. They are unique in their source. When, when you think of the writings that exists on our planet, I, I, uh, 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 your pastor and I were, were talking earlier about libraries. And uh, I love books. Uh, if, if my, one of my favorite things to do uh, is to head over to Barnes and Nobles and just get lost for an afternoon. So think about all the books that have been written. Think about all the religious books that have been written. Think about all the commentaries that have been written. Uh, 
Dr. Davey was taking me through the, the library that uh, you have here, and it, it's stunning. It's, it's an amazing uh, repository of theological truth and learning. And I could stay there for a long time. But when you come to the scriptures and you, and, and you think about all of the other writings, what is it about this writing? What is it about this set of writings that, that make it so unique? And, and, and it's unique because of its source. Who inspired it? These were given directly by God to his servants. This, these, these books, these writings that make up our scripture are, are unique because of their nature. They're more than human words. There is a sense in which as you open up your Bible and you read the words that Paul wrote, you're actually reading words that Paul received from God and that are intended by God to be communicated to you. And then their content is unique. The, the consistent testimony of God and of Jesus and these set-apart men is that the writing and the books that you hold in your hand that make up our Bible are, are unique. And they're unique in this way. They're, they were breathed out by God. They were inspired. The words that make up this writing were actually words that bear the full weight of his character. They come from God. They focus on his son. They are guided and guarded by his spirit. They are no ordinary words. That's why when you get up in the morning and you take your cup of coffee and you go to that place, wherever it is in, in your home or wherever it is that you do this, and you open up your Bible and you read, it, it's like no other book. There, there are moments in that experience when, when you feel like God is directly talking to you out of that book. And you know what? He actually is. There are, there are moments in which the Spirit of God takes a text from Scripture and begins to apply it very directly and very personally to things that are going on in your life that nobody else knows about. There are questions, there are battles that, that maybe are raging in your soul. And I'm not talking about sort of just blindly opening up your Bible and sticking your finger down in the middle of a text somewhere and trying to figure out. There, there are times in your ongoing reading of God's Word or in the listening of the preaching of God's Word or maybe even as you hear God's Word sung to you that all of a sudden the truth from that text of Scripture, the truth from the page that you just read it is uniquely applied by the Spirit of God to your life. And that's because God is actually using His Word to talk to you. That doesn't happen at Barnes & Noble's. I mean, there are wonderful things. I mean, I, I, I love to read uh, history. I love to read fiction. I, I, I read a lot of things. But I have to say, when I come to the scriptures and there are, are deep questions going on in my heart, my soul, all of a sudden the word of God begins to minister in a way that, that the spirit of God begins to uniquely use. These words have that power because of their nature. They were breathed out by God. They literally uh, come from the mind of God and they come from the mouth of God and they come through the hand of man. 
And therefore, these words are infallible. That, that's, that word simply means this. Your Bible is fully trustworthy in whatever it reports. It's fully trustworthy. They're inerrant words. They're completely accurate in what they claim. They're authoritative words. They, they measure life for us in terms of what it should look like morally and ethically and socially and spiritually in every arena of life. And they are sufficient. They are eminently capable and useful and helpful for all of life. So when you think about the Bible, Paul says you, you need to have a deeply personal, passionate belief that these writings that make up your Bible are unique, they're holy, and they're inspired. And, and what that means for you and me is this. Your Bible is an accurate record of what God wants you to know. You say, what, what, what does God want me to know about life? And God says, I wrote it down for you in a story that begins in Genesis and finishes in Revelation. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was really about a junior in college before it ever struck me that I had never read the Bible through in its entirety. I'd read portions of the Bible. I, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. My, my dad would have family time at dinner. We'd sit around the table and, and uh, he'd open up the Bible and, and uh, he'd read a little text and you know, we, we would sit there and, and, uh, and he'd pray, he'd lead in, in our family time. And then I went to church and I heard my pastor preach. Uh, and, and there were times, I remember one time as a, a teenager, my, uh, my pastor made a kind of an unusual comment. I, I, I wasn't the best listener at that stage in my life to preaching. Uh, but this, this kind of got my attention. Uh, my, my pastor said that he had a goal to read through the Bible uh, once for every year of his life. And I thought, man, you're going to read the Bible a lot because, I mean, he looked old to me at that time. Um, but, but somehow that stuck in my mind. I thought, maybe I should try to do that. You ever start to read the Bible? Genesis is, you know, think about it from the, you know, about a 14-year-old, 15-year-old mindset. Genesis is kind of cool. I mean, you open up the Bible and right away you got action. I mean, you got a snake that shows up and talks. That's pretty impressive. And, and, and stuff happens, and, you know, by, about, by, you know, the first 10 chapters, you've had a massive flood that's wiped everybody out. You've had, you know, then, then there's stuff that goes on. There's the calling of Abraham, and there's Isaac, and, and there's Jacob, and, and I mean, it's pretty awesome stuff. Now you're maybe, you know, February-ish, if you started in January, and, and you're not quite sure what to do with all of that, but it's got your attention. Then you hit Exodus. And Exodus starts off really nice. I mean, it's got a lot of action. You got Moses and these midwives that are leaping around and, and, and a baby that's born and hidden in the river and Pharaoh's daughter comes and, and the next thing you know, he's, he's, uh, he's killed two Egyptians and he's run off and he's talking to a bush that's on fire and then he's coming back and there's snakes showing up everywhere and, and Pharaoh's magicians and, and, and the next thing you know, there's plagues and, and then you go through this incredible Exodus and then you get to this mountain. And then you start talking about a tent for a long time. You're 14. You don't like camping. My idea of camping is Holiday Inn. And you read about this tent, and you get a lot of information about this tent. I mean, how many poles it has, 
what's on the roof, what's on top of the roof, what's around the curtain, what's inside, what's all built. I mean, you start reading about this tent, and you know, now it's marching like, oh man. And you finally get to the end of Exodus, and then you hit what? An entire book about the guys who live in the tent and take care of the tent. And you're like, man, and, and, and then you get through that, you kind of flash forward a little bit, and you hit the glorious book of... You page through, page through, and then all of a sudden, a bunch of snakes show up and bite people, and are like, yes, action! And you get through that section, and then it's all the names again. It's like God said, I knew you skipped them the first time, so now you're coming back. And at that point, you make a beeline for John 3.16 or Proverbs. And, and I hate to tell you, honestly, that, that's kind of the way it was for me for a long time. And I never saw the unbelievable unfolding of the amazing story of what God is doing in his universe. And he tells you that story because you have a small part to play in that story. I mean, for most of my early Christian life, my whole goal was to try to get God to work in my story. And, and I gotta figure out how to get God more in my story, so maybe I need to do more of this or more of that. Never occurred to me that God had an amazing story that he was unfolding to bring us back to a garden city. When you get to the end of Revelation, it looks a whole lot like the garden we first showed up in in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's an, un, it's an astonishing story. And, and I missed it because I never took the time to read it. And you're not going to believe something that you don't read or that you don't know. And so Paul is saying here, there's implications to what we've talked about. And the implications of our deep-seated belief and inspiration is that God has given you things that he wants you to know about the story that he is unfolding in his universe. And when you know that story and you understand it, it makes sense of the things that happen in your story. When you understand what God is doing in the amazing story of redemption, it puts a journey through cancer in perspective. And it helps you to see how that little piece of the story that is going on in your life is actually a part, a small part of this massive story that God is telling in his word. It's a reliable record of what God wants you to believe. And it's an authoritative standard of how God wants you to live. No wonder Paul said, Timothy, continue, continue in this. And that brings me to my final point tonight, and that is this, why is it so important to be so passionately convinced about the inspiration of your Bible? And I would say to you, things you already know, but let me, let me say them quickly tonight. Scripture makes you wise. Notice how Paul expresses this. You have been acquainted with sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. And then it, it tells you exactly what it is that the scriptures talk about that, that make you understand 
and, and give you wisdom about salvation. It is through faith in Christ and, and, and God's anointed, appointed champion, and his name is Jesus. The, these, these writings that Paul is talking about enlighten you. They have the ability, they have the amazing, unique ability, not just to tell you how a person is actually put right with God, but as the Spirit of God begins to open your eyes to what the Scripture says, you actually become believers in that story. I mean, think about what you believe. Think about the unbelievable things that you have become deeply convinced about because you believe them in the Scriptures. Let me give you an example. A virgin birth. I'm not trying to be inappropriate here, but, but how would you feel if, if all of a sudden you, somebody in your circle of life, an 18, maybe a 19-year-old young lady, uh, began to tell you that she was expecting a baby, and you're like, oh, well, well how did that happen? Well, I had a dream, and in that dream, an angel came and said I was going to have a son. You would kind of walk away from that conversation going, that is not what happened. That isn't how it works. I mean, if somebody actually literally got up here and said that to you and, and gave you that as the explanation, you might be polite and you may not poke at it, but in your mind, you're going to walk out of those doors going, that is not how that happened. But you actually believe that about a particular birth. Don't you? How, how did that happen? I mean, how did you come to believe this incredible story that is told to you in these books? Let me give you another one. You actually believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he was fully God and fully man. How did you come to believe that? You actually believe that he physically rose from the dead. How did you come to believe that? And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just saying to you that the scriptures have the ability not just to inform you, but as the Spirit of God begins to work through the Word of God in your heart, God actually helps you to believe these things that are in this book. This book has an amazing reality about how man is saved, that it is by faith and not by works. I mean, think about that. That faith that you have that is the gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, that faith is in the work that was done by God's own appointed, anointed Messiah, Jesus. And when you start in Genesis and you get to Revelation, you, you begin to see that this story is everywhere in the Scriptures. And Paul says the Scriptures have the ability to make you wise with regard to how it is that a man is put right with God. And that is through faith, in God's anointed, appointed champion, his Messiah, whose name is Jesus. Then these scriptures can make you holy. They, they sanctify you. They have a sanctifying effect. They, they form up. They are useful. They are profitable, the scripture says. They are capable. They are useful for doctrine. It teaches us truth for reproof. It corrects and refutes error in our lives. It, it, it corrects us. It restores 
and remakes and refashions us in accordance with what is true and right. And for instruction, it trains and strengthens us so that we continue in the truth and have endurance on the right path that is laid out for us in these very scriptures. So they make you wise unto salvation. They make you holy. They, they have sanctifying effect, and you knew that. But here's the final thing. Scriptures can make you profitable by empowering you for a life of significance. Notice how Paul speaks to this. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, outfitted for every good word. Paul is saying that when a person has immersed himself in the scriptures and has been made wise into salvation and has gone through the sanctifying process, is living out the sanctifying process of the word of God in his life, there is a certain effect that comes. I I don't think Paul is just talking about good things. In other words, you know, you read the Bible enough and you're going to be a kinder person. You're going to find the little old lady and you're going to stop and help her across the street, which we should do. I don't think it's talking about you're just going to be nicer and kinder and and more prone to do good things in your life that you may not have otherwise done. I think there's something deeper that Paul has in mind when he talks about your life and good works. I think he has in mind the kind of thing that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5 when he talked about that as we live out our life in this way, people will see what we're doing and they will come to an amazing conclusion. They will glorify what? Or who? They will glorify our Father who is in heaven. So let me close with this as we, as we wrap up tonight. The world is full of people, even unsaved people, who do a lot of good works, correct? I mean, think about your town and think about how many hospitals have been built by people who have given their money because they wanted to help people who were in need. Or think about the charity work that goes on in the average city. Think about the, the, the philanthropy that happens in, 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 in really in, in, our, in, our, in our country, but, but even around the world. Think about how many even people who, who know nothing about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, yet, yet they do all kinds of incredible works to benefit their fellow man. And here's the point. When they get done with those good works, what's the conclusion that people who experience those good works have? Where does their focus go? It goes right to that person, correct? Wow, I can't believe that, and they'll name a person, I can't believe they took all of that that money and they gave it to education, or I can't believe that they did all of these good works and they, they, you know, or all of this this good effort and they built a hospital or they, they, they did something. And it always comes back to them. And the Apostle Paul says, now, when, when you live your life and your life has been deeply shaped by what's in this book and, and you go out and you do the works 
that God has assigned for you. And I actually think those works are laid out for us very specifically in the last half of the book of Ephesians. When you live that way and people encounter your life and experience your life, they're going to come to a very different conclusion. And their conclusion is going to be they are actually going to glorify somebody very different. They're going to glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's how you live your life with significance. That's how as an accountant or as a nurse or as a doctor or as an educator, you live your life in a way that is shaped by this book, that is deeply anchored by a firm conviction that this book is not just the words of men about God, but it is the words of God to men. And those words make you wise unto salvation and they have a sanctifying effect in your life. And as all of that plays out in your life, as your life is lived on the stage of the greater story that God is telling, all of a sudden people begin to, to look at your life and they begin to experience those works and they come to this conclusion. There's something that you have that I don't. Some of you in this room might be given an assignment by the Lord that is very difficult. I mean, for some of you, the Lord at some point in your life may come and put his arm around you and say, I, I have a mission I want to send you on. There's a family just like yours with kids at the same stage in life as yours. And one of those children is in a hospital getting chemotherapy and, and is in the very final stages of a, a very difficult disease. And I need, I'm, I'm assigning you a mission to go and, and live in such a way that that family will see the hope and the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And so I want to put one of your children on that hospital wing. But I'm going to be with you. I will sustain you. I will be with you at every point. I will feed you from this word every day. I have given you unshakable promises. And I have given you a testimony over thousands of years that every promise I make, I fulfill. And this mission, for this brief momentary breath that you call life, If you will let this book shape the way you live and walk in that mission, the people on that hall in the bed next to you will see and they will know that this is not coming from you. The hospital they're in may have come from the good works of a pagan man, but what they're seeing in you as you live out this truth that you know from this book is going to point them to a very different picture. It's going to point them to me, to your Father who is in heaven. Let me ask you something. Are you up for that kind of a mission? Because ultimately when you see the big story of God, that is not an unusual act in the big story. 
And the thing that sustains people like you and me, ordinary, everyday people who are just trying to muddle through life, the thing that sustains us and that elevates our life to far more than just 70 or, or 60 or 80 ordinary years is the fact that we have a book that unfolds the immense story of what is really true. And that's why Paul says to Timothy is, I am about to be poured out as the chapter that God allowed me to play in this story comes to a conclusion. I want you to know something. And I want you to hold on to something. And I want you to continue in something. I want you to hold on to the words that you have been given that contain the faith that I have preached. Think of the immense the immense number of Gentiles who have come to know the truth about Jesus because of one man who God put in the story and he said, your mission is to go and bring to me an offering of those Gentiles that's acceptable. Think of how Romans 12, 1 and 2 has shaped your own life and your own thinking. So tonight, as you think about grace essentials, here's the first. Believe deeply and passionately and persistently in the inspiration of the book that God has given to you. Lord, thank you tonight for this book and for these verses that we have read so many times in our lives. And yet, Lord, for the immense truth that they contain that, that puts our life into perspective and, and Lord, we're so thankful for the word that, that made us wise, that, that, that opened our eyes to the truth about how a person is really made right with you. And that also, Lord, sanctifies us and that gives our life significance as we live in the light of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.